0: Welcome to the Miller Odcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at missourireview.com. Hello and welcome to Miller Oddcast. The Missouri Review podcast, where we listen to and discuss the finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. I'm Mark McKee, TMR's managing editor. Thank you for being here, wherever here is, for episode 51, featuring the latest finalist for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize in audio documentary Behind the Curtain The War for the West, from Jacqueline Gusta. Jackie Gusta is an associate professor at Western Connecticut State University, where she creates Behind the Curtain, an investigative documentary podcast about current and political events. BTC began as a political comedy podcast, evolved into an interview format, and finally, into its current form. It will someday return to its roots, but for now, Jackie serves as host of Lifelong Learners, a vlog podcast in which she interviews amazing movers and shakers in the educational technology world. You can learn more on her LinkedIn, which we'll throw up in the show notes. Stick around after the piece to hear me offer a brief commentary on it. But for now, Jackie Gusta, Behind the Curtain The War for the West.
1: Hi there, and welcome to Behind the Curtain, where we go deep into the issues of the day and talk to people who know what's behind the smokescreen of what they want you to see and what's really going on. I'm Jackie Guzda. I'm not convinced that these urban, suburban lives we live today are all that they're made out to be. Yeah, things are convenient. Grocery stores have the most anything you want, Amazon will deliver it, and there's a Dunkin' Donuts around just when you're thinking you need one. But sometimes, when you've got to be here, or take care of that, or when your time is eaten up in just one more traffic jam, especially in those traffic jams, you got to think, maybe there's a better way an easier way to live somewhere you can just slow down somewhere it's okay just to breathe just taking what's around you like a lot of little girls i used to horseback ride And I stayed with it for a long time, even after I fell off during a horse show. Got right back on, though, to the accompaniment of the pity clap. In those years, I fell in love with several of those big, pretty beasts. A lot of little girls do.
2: I went to a roundup. I've been a horse person all my life and um, saw them run a fall till his feet fell off and then laugh
1: about it. That was Laura Lee, founder of the organization Wild Horse Education. Roundups are conducted by the Bureau of Land Management, or the BLM. They do it to control the wild horse from overpopulating the land.
2: And I just took the skills that I had, um, a broken laptop that I wired together with another laptop so it worked and a hundred dollar drugstore camera and just started documenting and then learned the law and learned how to write litigation and formed a nonprofit. And I've been at war ever since
1: <laughs> Laura's War. the war to save the wild horses of the West. She didn't start it, though. In 1971, Velma Johnston, later nicknamed Wild Horse Annie, saw blood dripping from the back of a horse transport. She followed it until the end of its trip when the horses were unloaded. It was packed so heavily with the animals that one young foal had been crushed to death by the others. That was the moment that changed her life forever. She became an activist for the wild horse, leading Congress to pass the 1971 Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burros Protection Act. The purpose was to protect and maintain the herds, a symbol of the historic and pioneer spirit of the West. Laura's in the war to ensure that these animals remain protected and free. On the other side of the war are the cattle ranchers. Their livelihood comes from grazing their livestock on public lands, those same lands that are home to the wild horses.
2: BLM has been a co-opted industry since the day it began. Um, it's it's a regulatory agency that uh, has repetitive sound bites. I mean, let's let's just use this one example. In 1971. Congress declared wild horses fast disappearing from the landscape. We had about 25,000 at that time. The vote was unanimous that our wild horses had to be protected. I mean, can you imagine a unanimous vote in Congress today? I can't. Um, And so any other species, what would have been done is a recovery number would have been set, and areas would have been set aside And Congress did set aside land, the land they now stand, for priority use, not exclusive use, but priority use for wild horses. And the way the system worked is we didn't have a recovery number set. Politics claims that same number that's fast disappearing is appropriate for the landscape. And then on the areas where our horses now stood, many of those areas mustang continued for four or five years after The act was passed. So even the land base that they were given was smaller. And then within the land base of the current boundaries, wild horses are given less than 16% of the grass that grows. That's not what that law intended. That's not, wild horses live on 12% of public land and get less than 16% of the resource, okay? So when we're talking about wild horses, we're talking about what, 0.02% of all public lands grazing land, uh, 66% is open to livestock of all public lands. So when we're talking about this, this issue, we're just talking about some small areas in the West where we have heavy-duty political interests run by livestock. They're the congressmen. They're the county commissioners. They're the governors. They're the, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the reality of the land base, the reality of the resource, the reality of the horse. We're talking about the reality
1: of politics. Politics. That's sometimes dirty word. But to be fair, the ranchers need to make a living, and in order to do so they need the public lands to graze their livestock.
2: This myth of the Marlboro man, right? This this independent, you know, rancher out there trying to to keep his family livelihood going is rapidly becoming a myth. What we have is we have mining companies buying up these ranches. Um, you know, creating livestock large livestock corporations and buying up these small ranches for the water rights so this this these this little family rancher that really is something that's disappearing um, it's it's we've got corporate ranching. Mm-hmm.
3: Countless times have I hiked way out on the public lands into seemingly remote landscapes and, you know, on my map, noting that, ah, there's going to be a spring beyond that rise there in that little draw of sandstone or whatever it might be. And I get there and it's all in the the spring where I'm supposedly going to get water to survive the next day for my walk across the, the desert is a pile of feces and urine and filth and undrinkable. Um, So this is happening all across the West, whether it be, as I said, contamination of surface water, destruction of native flora. Additionally, there's mass uh, destruction of native fauna that are considered competitors or pests with the cattle industry. Um, Wild horses being one of them. Wild horses are considered pests that um, that compete for forage with cattle.
1: That was Christopher Ketchum, hiker and author of This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West. He's an independent writer for publications like Harper's, The National Geographic, Salon, and the like. He loves our natural wide-open spaces and likewise hates how capitalistic industry is destroying it. His website contains a video in which he's watching, because that's all he can do. A bulldozer clearing public land by downing trees, low-growing brush, everything in its path.
3: What's happening there is that bullhog is clearing out ancient trees, native trees, um, the two species that are perhaps most dominant in the Great Basin, and Colorado Plateau regions of the West, the pinion and the juniper to make way for the planting of um, forage for cows. Um, And this is occurring all across the West. It is um, not just the destruction of native ecosystems, the purposeful, intentional destruction of native ecosystems for the aggrandizement of the cattle industry, but also a generalized destruction that occurs simply as a result of the surfeit of cattle on, on fragile arid landscapes that are not adapted to grazing pressures. So when you have this um, incredible herbivory from cows, it results in a denudation of the land and ultimately desertification. Additionally, you have the trampling of springs and streams and um, widespread um, contamination of um, of surface water with um, uh, E. coli and other contamin- other uh, pathogens from the feces from cattle. In my book, I you know I include wild horses, but I tend more to look at native species like Canis lupus, the American, the gray wolf, or um, the grizzly bear. Was it Ursus something. <laughs> Terrible bear, um, and in uh, other native species like sage grouse, a uh, ground nesting, a ground nesting bird of the of the Great Basin sagebrush sea, or uh, prairie dogs, or similar creatures. All of which, by the way, the wolf, the grizzly, the sage grouse, the prairie dog, all of which are persecuted by the cattle industry to the extent, for example, that ninety eight percent, ninety eight percent of prairie dog populations across the West have been eradicated as a result of a mass of a mass poisoning campaign that has been ongoing since the 1930s.
1: Tell me about that.
3: Well, I mean, the prairie dogs are considered competitors for forage with cattle. So, ergo, we must destroy them. And that is the history of the West right there. So, you <laughs>
1: So you're talking about the grizzly bear and you're talking about um, all the other animals in the sage grouse. What's the end game for them at this point?
3: The end game for the animals? Yep. They, they'll be wiped out, ultimately. They'll be wiped out by combination of human persecution, destruction of habitat, human encroachment. Um, in the case of grizzly bears, you can add a uh, uh, trophy hunting to that, the loathsome practice of killing an animal, so you can stuff it and put it on your wall. Um, and then climate change. So they are going to be, they are going to disappear.
1: Laura of Wild Horse Education saw some pretty bad destruction too.
2: You know, we get another, uh, you know, mile wide open pit mine that's putting arsenic into the water. And those small tributaries and waterways are being contaminated by the new technologies with mining. We have to start limiting industry in our wild places, or the wild place is gone. And with it, mountain lion, wild horse, rabbit, uh, sage-grouse, everything here is gone with it.
1: It's an age-old battle. One side wants to honor and preserve, the other wants progression for profit. At its core, it's about what you value. Once life on these public lands perish, they, everything within those lands, are not coming back.
3: Unless you have a radical change in, in land policy, land management, and infor- most importantly, enforcement of the laws we already have on the books, such as the 1971 wild horse law. If we just enforce the law, we might be able to protect these animals. If we just enforce, for example, the Endangered Species Act, we might be able to protect endangered species. If we enforce the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, well, if we enforce the Clean Water Act very specifically with regard to the cattle industry, well, hell, <laughs> a, huge, a huge proportion of their operations will be declared illegal because of the non-point source contamination that, um, that cattle present as they, ro- as they rove across the wet landscape, you know, defecating, I don't know if you've ever hung out with cows on the, on the uh, open range, but mostly mostly just defecate.
1: Unbelievable. Not about the cows, of course, but there are laws on the books already that protect the wildlife, the water on these lands.
3: We have in the West um, representatives, state and, elect- state and federal elected officials who are heavily influenced by the cattle industry by the timber industry by oil and gas companies and not least by recreation interests whether it be motorized recreation interests or non-motorized recreation interests and these um, together comprise hundreds of billions of dollars of revenues and profits and um, so money pours into our legislators and um, of course, our legislators, being the prostitutes that they are, do what they're paid to do. Um, and and what, what are they paid to do? They're paid to make sure that the rails are greased for timber, livestock, oil and gas, recreation, and the general exploitation of our public lands for private profit.
1: So who's supposed to be protecting the lands, the animals, from these people?
3: The very land management regulators who have been captured by the industries they're supposed to be regulating. So this is a classic, this is a, a classic eventuality in, in, you know, in interest group liberalism. You have all these interest groups vying for, for power and influence over government. And in this case, you've got a whole bunch of interest groups that seek uh, massive profits from the public lands, and they have infiltrated and captured the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the, and to a lesser extent, the National Park Service. These land management regulatory agencies are not regulating on behalf of the public interest. They're, they're regulating on behalf of the private interest. And that to me is, is criminal. It's, um, it's offensive to me as a citizen and it needs to stop.
1: Chris paints a pretty bleak picture. The true and beautiful wildness of the Wild West, gone. And those that are assigned to protect it just turn a blind eye. But there are many people who value what he values, organizations, movements, that exist just to preserve those lands.
2: You know,
3: you had a once great organization called the Wilderness Society that was founded on the idea that we had to stop commerce from invading the public lands. We had to create areas of the public lands that were designated as wilderness. That is, as places where no machines were allowed, there was no mechanized travel allowed, where where the human impact would be limited to a primitive impact. That is, you would, you would walk like the biped that you are across the landscape. Um, so the Wilderness Society, according to Many 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 people I've interviewed out west who are grassroots activists have has fallen has fallen from that ideal and is, has now embraced a, a kind of compromise about, about how you know about how wilderness should be managed um even worse is a group like the nature Conservancy which is is a whole hog corporate greenwash operation um, the nature Conservancy yes will buy lands for for certain types of uh, if we, we'll, we'll buy lands as, as conservation easements, as they're known. But um, in truth, the nature conservancy is all about um, all about creating the veneer of protection, so as uh, so as to allow continued exploitation by corporate interests.
1: But why?
3: For money. That's it. For paychecks. For paychecks. For 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 patronage within the bureaucracy, within the, you know, within the environmental bureaucracy, um, if you take a principled hard stand against corporate America, they, corporate America, will rescind its funding. And so you no longer have a multi, you, know, you no longer have hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into, the, into your coffers every year if you're the Nature Conservancy. So you no longer have those, Seven figure salaries, no longer have those steak dinners and those friggin', you know, flying around in your jets everywhere with your big carbon footprint. No longer have any of that stuff. So it's just money.
2: There's valleys I can walk you in, where we can still sit and enjoy a sunset with 400 wild horses, and sage-grouse will be there, and mule deer, and elk, and there's mountain lion in 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 the hills behind us, and it's just incredible. But everything that's mapped out and moving forward, those places won't exist in three to four years. We may be the generation that, um, that sees the death of our wild places in the, in the West. So go come out, see what it is, learn what it is, read what it is, visit if you can, and fight for it before it's gone.
1: If you would like to know more about the plight of the wild horses, go to Laura's website, wildhorseeducation.org. Chris's book, This Land, How Cowboys, Corporations, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West is available on Amazon. Or join our upcoming live stream event where you can talk back to Laura and Chris, if he's not out hiking, to discuss, ask questions, and have your say about the plight of the wild horses and the ruination of public lands in the West. The music you heard was Tumbleweed, Texas by Chris Hogan. As always, thanks to producer Pete. I'm Jackie Gusta.
3: Behind the Curtain is a production of
0: WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Fulby. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening. Hello, Internet. It's Mark McKee, Managing Editor from the Missouri Review. Thanks for being with us for this podcast. You've just listened to Jackie Guzda, Behind the Curtain, The War for the West. This will be a pretty brief comment because I think that one of the most successful things about a podcast like this, like Behind the Curtain, is that it can draw out a story with much larger implications than its focal point. I mean, here, of course, we're talking about the treatment of wild horses and that conversation with the people that she interviews pretty swiftly broadens into the larger question of what our true values are and whether or not we are for sustainability, whether or not we value life in all its various forms, or whether we have any power at all to resist the values of corporate profits over what would seem to be majority values, environmental values, people, places, and things that actually have lives that are impacted by the limitations that the demand for corporate profits incurs. I say, listen to it again. These are the things that we need to hear and that we need to guard up for we're proud to present it as Miller Oddcast number 51 we'll be back soon with 52 please stay tuned be safe out there bye thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast number 51 featuring behind the curtain the war for the West from Jackie Guzda episode 52 will be here for you before you know it so keep a watchful ear and a listening eye Thanks, as always, to the outgoing Missouri Review contest editor, Bailey Boyd, and to Patricia Miller for her generous support for the Miller Audio Prize. Be advised. Entries are now open for the second annual Perkoff Prize, the new opportunity from the Missouri Review, which awards $3,000 in publication and prizes to the poet, fiction writer, and essayist with the best work engaging the fields of health and medicine in evocative ways. Learn more on our website. Or subscribe to our newsletter for weekly updates. As ever, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard! Give us the opportunity to discover you. Submit your work today. In addition, we have tons of marvelous and free creative content to read, listen to, and even watch on our website. Learn more
1: at MissouriReview.com.